If you have your Bibles, open them to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. We're going to be looking at quite a few passages tonight, but I think Ephesians chapter 4 would be a good reading before we do, because Paul talks here about the, the uh, nature of the church as she's related to this glorious and exalted king. So I want to read verse 1 through verse 16, Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Well, let's turn our hearts to our King. Let's seek Him tonight in prayer. Let's pray. Our, our everlasting King, we come to you seated on a throne of mercy and grace. Lord, you know our hearts, how timid we would be. We would never have drawn near to you had you not conquered us. You are light and we don't like the light. God, even as believers, we're timid to come to you at times. We're ashamed of how quickly we feel that your love for us must be shaken and then we read the scripture and we find the command that we are called to come to a throne of mercy and grace to receive mercy for our sins and grace, grace for the task in front of us. 
God, it is you who has planned. You have planned our redemption, Father. You have laid your hands upon the shoulders of a champion for us, your own eternal son. Lord Jesus Christ, you humiliated yourself. You stooped low. You took upon yourself the true humanity, a human body and soul, yet without sin. You carried the law perfectly where we have so often failed. You suffered the full wrath of the Father And when it poured over your soul, you did not lose grip upon your people, but brought us safely through. You were raised for our justification and have now ascended on high to rule over all things for the benefit of your children. We worship you, Holy Spirit, sent sent to the murderers of the Son, just at a time when we think that God would surely now cast earth into ultimate destruction, but after the crucifixion, you came, you conquer our hearts with your love, you free our minds to understand, you soften our hearts, you take the chains off of our will so that we can freely, happily, wholeheartedly lay ourselves at the feet of a new king. You make us to be prisoners of Christ. And God, we say with every Christian who's ever been before us and everyone that will come after us, that the prisoners of Jesus have a king's life of it. You open our eyes to see what an only one he is. But Lord, we did not expect that a part of our rescue would be that you didn't just rescue us, but you placed us into a family that you've given us friendships that will never end in Christ. And you've given us the joy of following our Lord Jesus Christ's pattern in the way that we love each other. So we ask now, God, that you would stoop down once again and that tonight you would teach us what it is to walk with you as a part of this family. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning, things that we looked at, I, I suppose, are pretty hard to, uh, to take in some ways, and, um, oh, you were, thank you, and I want to say one thing about this morning's sermon before we go to tonight. We didn't have time to continue, I mean, you very patient with me as you were, but um, when you think of the life of Asa, he was a, he was such an encouraging example, but Asa was a very imperfect man, and I want you to remember this, because there's always the temptation from the enemy that when we do get serious about setting our hearts to seek the Lord afresh, and especially when you, like a church, in a situation where you're in, where things have occurred, and hard things, things that break our hearts at times, things that make us ask questions, and in a sense, you're facing uh, a new path, and so how do we proceed with the Lord here? And you determine to set your heart to seek the Lord. The enemy will say to you, but your motives are imperfect. So why will God listen? And you're seeking. It's imperfect. And it will be. Asa was a man at the end of his life who sinned against the Lord. And he didn't finish as well as he started. All right? it, wasn't, it wasn't a terrible story. Do you not think that God knew that within a few short moments in God's eyes, within a few short moments, this 
man Asa, who all his early life had determined to remove idolatry in the land, that at the end of his life he would make some decisions that wouldn't please the Lord. And yet God allowed Asa to be the leader who would lead the nation to find God. And a time of great national revival came under the leadership of a man that was very imperfect. Our hope in seeking the Lord is not the degree to which we bring uh, our souls in line. It's not the degree of our perfection. God, we've sought you so well, we finally deserve you to, for you to draw near. Our hope is that in the covenantal privileges that Jesus Christ has purchased for you, in the new covenant, it's very clear, Psalm 68 or James 4, or all, all the Old Testament prophecies, or for instance, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 through chapter 7, verse 1. One of the privileges that Christ has purchased for the church is that God would be among us. The experienced nearness of God is what we call a, a covenanted presence. Christ has purchased that right. We want to be honest with God so that when we pray and we say that we're seeking the Lord, we're not playing games. But it's not the degree of our seriousness that earns us the right. So your confidence is not in how well you seek. Your confidence is in the unalterable covenant privileges of Christ. Now tonight I want us to think about the church again. And tonight I hope that it's an encouraging look. We've been speaking this weekend, thinking together about how a person's view of God affects everything. It affects what you think of the Christian life. It affects what you think of a Christian home. It affects what you think of a church. And it is of extreme importance today that we get our views of the church correct. And we have the right measure of the privilege of being brought into the living body of Christ here on earth. And this is just a local manifestation of that. But to be part of a local body of the Lord Jesus Christ. How big a deal is that? Where I come from, when churches aren't so healthy, some people who get pretty serious about Christianity decide that they're going to go to the church of me. And they separate and they have a home church. Now, if you live in a place where there's no gospel being preached... I suppose a home church is a good idea, but if you live in a place where the gospel is preached, but the church isn't perfect, I think a home church is a very poor idea, but that's not my topic tonight. So they get together with two or three families, and the families all agree on all things. And if God blesses a thing like that, it grows to the point where it can't fit in the living room anymore, and then they have to go rent a building, and then everybody's unhappy. Because now it's one of those churches again. And they all dream about the good old days when it was just seven of us. It's not a very healthy pattern. How are you going to get the right measure of a church? You do not get the right measure of a church by sitting in your seat and looking around you. Because everyone around you is, is still being... Re- if they are believers, they're still being rescued. It's, we're all very imperfect. Your pastor tells you, he's imperfect, I'm imperfect, you're imperfect. And so if you try to think, well, what value is a church? And you look around and you think, if it's a good week, wow, it's a lot of value here. There's some really great people. If it's a bad week, there's not much value here. 
You cannot get your measure of a church, of the church, and belonging to the body of Christ by looking at us. There are different, different ways of thinking about the church today. One way is, and this is very popular right now, is, is I would call it the anti-establishment attitude. And that is people generally younger than myself, though I told you, I, I, on the inside I'm 17, all right? So don't believe the wrinkles. I recently grew these whiskers, and all the women in the church who complained before when I grew a beard, I go to a church where all the ladies feel very free to tell me when my appearance is ugly. And um, so they said to me, you know, this time I like the beard, John, and this was the reason. Well, you know, it goes with um, your older face. And I said, so, <laughs> so I'm really tempted to shave it now, but um, now that I'm in my mid-40s, I guess I'm allowed to grow it. This and I don't know why I told you that story. Ignore that one, all right? Tony, erase that. <clears throat> the, the anti-establishment. The, oh, yes, I know how I got there, the younger crowd. There are many very earnest 20-ish-year-olds who are starting churches with really good doctrine. But their attitude toward the gathering of, of the church is very unbiblical. It, the view is that this institution has become a cumbersome and outdated entity which really inhibits real evangelism and genuine Christian lifestyle. So we need to do away with this type of thing and rethink everything about the gathering of believers. Now that's one way to think of the church. Another way is the reaction against that and that is where denominational loyalties rise up. And we say, this is, the, the church is important, my church is important, but what happens usually is we just focus on the distinctives of our denomination, why we're Baptist with a capital B, and this is why we're Baptist, and don't you dare go to a Methodist or a Presbyterian church because we're Baptist, and that's not a very helpful way to approach it. Some people, tired of the American Idol approach to Sunday morning services, have decided to go back to a high church approach, a, an Anglican or a Roman Catholic approach, not because they have necessarily changed their theology, but because they're sick of Sunday morning being everybody's karaoke time, you know, where they get up and do their talent and then everyone sits down and, and, and we only, and everything's horizontal. Isn't that, wasn't that sweet? And want everybody be encouraged and the vertical focusing on God isn't there anymore. So, you can at least go to a, a setting where there is a liturgy and a ceremony that's, that's beautiful and it's, it's um, grown up. I don't think that's a, a healthy way of rethinking church. What we need to do when we rethink church to keep church from being de-emphasized or idolized is that we have to get the measure of a church by stepping back and not looking at the church at all, but looking at God. What you think of God is the most significant influence on what you think of a church. So you can trace your thoughts backward. What you think of belonging to a body of believers right now really is a, is a very good indication of what kind of views of God you have. If you have low views of God, you'll have big views of yourself. And church at most is a useful tool for you and your family. If you have high and biblical views of God and low views of yourself, you find church is essential 
and it's precious. Tonight, I'd like for us to step back and look at the church, the glory of belonging to Christ's bride. Two things in particular. Who does she belong to? And how was she made his bride? And these two things together help us begin to get the right measures of what it is to belong to a real church. Now, I have to start with the quote, all right? And the quote is by a man named R.B. Kuyper. Some of you may have read his book. He wrote a book on the church. And this is what he said. The word of God tells us that Christ's church is glorious. Not only does history ascribe to it a past that in many respects is glorious, and not only does it prophesy a glorious future for the church, the church is essentially glorious. The Christian church is glorious in its very nature. Now, quotes are hard when you're listening. So what does he say? The scripture says the church of Christ is a glorious body. Not only has she had wonderful days in the past, not only do we look forward to wonderful days in the future, no matter how you're doing right now, whether your performance is poor or good, the church is in its essence a thing that is glorious. It reflects the glory of God. Do you see church that way? If we look back at the book of Acts, we say, oh, the church is glorious. And if we look forward in some of the prophecies of the scripture, and when we think of Christ presenting the bride perfected before the Father's eyes, and the Father has no complaint, we say, the church is going to be glorious. But when you look at the church today, it's very tempting to get the wrong measure. I want us to ask ourselves another question. Maybe we could ask it this way. Are the, in your mind, are the days of the church's glory on earth all in the past? Now, I really like history. I mean, I did my PhD in history. I look and I find myself feeling the New Testament. That was the days of glory for the church. The Reformation, the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening. I find it hard to think that today can be a day glorious for the church. Is it really possible that the church can be a glorious body here, now? Now, before we go any further with this question, I want us to agree on two things. The first is this. It's of great importance that you get the right measure of the church because when we don't have the right measure of things, we treat them in a way that we shouldn't treat them. So, for instance, if I drop a penny down a, down a drain as I get out of the car, you step out of the car, maybe there's a, you know, there's a drain there in the ground and, and, my, and the penny falls out of my pocket and goes down the drain. I look down there and I think, oh, well, it's just a penny. I don't have time. I'm not going to pull the lid off and try to fish around. But if I drop my new iPhone down the drain, I say, we can't go anywhere till I get my iPhone out of there. I don't mind losing a nickel. Some of you, I know that bothers you, but I don't mind losing a nickel. But if I drop a $100 bill and the wind blows it, 
I'm not going to pretend like I'm, I'm too grown up to chase it. I'll chase it all around the yard. I have to have that back. If the church is a thing of little value, well, when it seems to suit you, when the, when the sermon series is one that you kind of like, you come, and when it doesn't seem to be valuable, you don't come. When people you like in the church are hurting, you pour yourself out for them, but when people you don't know very well are hurting, you think it's not my job. We will always respond wrongly to God as a group if we don't get the right measure of a church. The second thing we have to agree on before we go any further is it is important to get the right definition of church. What do I mean by church? Who is the church? Who does God call the church? And we have no time to go into this carefully, but let me just read you a series of descriptions taken from books all the way from Ezekiel to Matthew, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and 1 Corinthians. Ezekiel says the church is made up of those whose hearts have been circumcised or made new. That's who's in the church. Matthew 12, it's whoever does the will of the Father in heaven. Now, that's not how you get into the church, but that's an evidence that you're part of his church. Luke 18, those who are childlike in their response to God. John 3, those who are born from above. John 15, those who abide in Christ and bear fruit. Acts 2, those who gladly receive the message of the apostles. Acts 4, those who heard and added faith to what they heard. Acts 9 and 11, those who believed and turned to the Lord. Romans 8, those who are led by the Spirit are in the church. 1 Corinthians 3, those whose lives are built on the foundation of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, those who have been baptized by the Spirit into Christ, into one body. Now, that's just a short description, but that's what we're talking about, right? We're not talking about a building and a, and a membership made up of a bunch of nice people. Our thoughts of the church do reflect our views of God. So let's, let's be careful and work on our views of God and get our view of the church right. Well, there is a glory or a beauty to the church. She is essentially beautiful in the eyes of God. I want to give you a number of ways you can see that tonight, and then that's really all we're going to do. All right? So we're going to look at the church like a, like a gym, and we're going to look at it, and we'll turn it facet by facet and look at it from different angles. So if you wonder in the middle of the sermon, where are we? All right, just let me tell you, that's the way we're headed. Let me give you the first glance. The church is beautiful, is glorious, not just because we live rightly, but because of our origin. When do you generally place the start of the church in your mind? Book of Acts? Well, you can have lots of arguments over that one. Covenant with Abraham? I'm going to send the Messiah. The whole world's going to be blessed through you. The promise of the gospel to Adam and Eve. When do you think this church had its origin? Early, what, 30 years ago? I don't know how many years. Is that where you placed the beginning? Every true believer is united to the church, to the body of Christ that is eternal in the heart of God. It precedes all other earthly institutions. There have been many kingdoms, many marriages, many families, many social groups, and the church has preceded them all. 
and the church will outlast them all. Families will be divided at the judgment. Nations fall, but the church will remain. Think about what the scripture tells us about this, about the origin of the church. In Isaiah 42, we find that God chooses, he elects, but I'm not talking about electing us. He elects the champion of the church, and that's the great election. If you really want the sweetness of election, you start there, not with Ephesians 1. Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. So in eternity past, the Father is turning to the Son, delighting in the Son as the one who would save a people. But Ephesians does tell us, doesn't it, that mysterious statement that God even chose His bride for the Son before the foundation of the world. Jeremiah says it this way, The Lord appeared to me of old, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. We sing it in a hymn, in the hymn book that we have in the church where I pastor. We talk about in the councils eternal, God devised this great plan. But that really is what we call an anthropomorphism. We're really describing God when we say God decided to choose a people. God decided to be merciful. We're really using anthropomorphism. We're describing God in human terms. But you do understand that because God is not like us, he doesn't reason through things and think through things and one day come to a decision. When the Bible says that he has loved us from everlasting, what that means is the origin of the church It never had a beginning. It has always been in the heart of the triune God to rescue a people. It's an amazing thing. To be loved like that by God makes the church glorious. Let's continue to think along some of these lines. Why? Why? Well, The origins of the church are not rooted merely in God's sovereignty or God desiring to bring glory to himself. There is also this amazing statement that he has done it from love, having loved us. And the reasons that he's loved us in Scripture are never given. You can't find any passage where God says, this is what was so great about you that I loved you. So the old theologians describe it this way. God has always loved his bride, always loved the people, and he drew his reasons from within himself. The church is a glorious entity. Her origin shows the glory. Now, let's look at the glory of the church from another angle. The glory of the church can also be viewed in the manner by which he brings her to himself. How does he bring her to himself? I mean, we all like love stories. We all like, you know, princess, girls getting married to princes and then, you know, the new princess of uh, Wales and she's really pretty. Her husband's handsome. Their babies are pretty. You know, I mean, she's not allowed to have a gray hair before it's reported in the news. I saw a picture that she has a gray hair, but uh, I'm sure that the queen will adjust that somehow and take care of all the problems. But everyone likes love stories and and we love love stories that... I mean, we watch those British movies, don't we? You know, you know, Jane Austen stuff. My wife hates him. We start off in the movie, guy and girl. You know that they love each other, but they don't want to tell each other because they're British. And so it takes them two hours to get around to telling each other that they love each other. My wife says, why don't we just say we love each other and we can be done with this movie? And so I say, but that's the whole fun of the movie. It's the angst and he's 
trying to figure out how he can get her to love him, and she's wondering how he would ever love her. And how did Christ make us his? It's part of the glory of the church, how he brought us to himself. Well, the first thing, he purchases us. Husbands, love your wives, you know, Paul said, just as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Acts chapter 20, Paul warns the elders of Ephesus, shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Now I want you to think of something. Men who have everything, all right, Bill Gates, men who have everything, don't take their precious fortune and pour it all into purchasing something new unless it's amazingly precious and valuable. But God, who owns everything, gives his son for what is so ugly, so unattractive, so shockingly beneath him for the sinners and draws them to himself. He purchases us. He frees us. Isaiah 49, 24. There's a wonderful passage talking about what Christ would do when he comes. Listen to this passage. Shall the prey be taken from the, Almighty, from the mighty? Now, I have to say... God has already said he's going to rescue them when he sends the Messiah. And here's a complaint. Will the prey be taken from the Almighty? Or will the captives of the righteous be delivered? Now that's the complaint. You say that you will do something in the coming of the Messiah that will rescue us. But we are the victims, the prey, we're the hunted. We're the prey of the mighty. We're the captives who ought to be captives. We deserve to be in prison. We're the captives of the righteous. And the answer is this, even the captives of the mighty will be taken away and the prey of the terrible will be delivered. Think about how Christ conquers us. He enters into our humanity. He carries the law. He suffers on the cross. In doing that, the strong man has come. The stronger man has come and he has Come to us and we're held captive in the strong man's fortress, in Satan's fortress. And he destroys the power of Satan. He enters the fortress and he brings us out as his reward. But it's not just that, is it? There's a law. There's a law, the law of God, which has placed us under condemnation righteously. Has anybody ever been delivered from that? Well, we have, if we're Christians. But Christ does it by suffering All that the law required. He doesn't save us by setting the law aside and and lowering God's expectations. He does it by taking every one of those expectations in his life and then in his death and lifting the law up and honoring the law. There's a glory in the way Christ has brought us to himself. Think of this. Think of the courtship of Christ and a Christian. Courtship is a beautiful thing, a boy in love. Suddenly, all his energy, all his thoughts, all his time, all his emotions, all his money are all directed to one object, his love. And all of his friends are upset 
when young men in the church where I pastor fall in love and start courting and get engaged, all the other guys in the church their age get together and say, he's gone. He's gone. There's another one. Gone. But when we talk about the glory of the church and Christ drawing, wooing us to himself, it is all the energy and resources and love and wisdom and power, not of a boy, but of a God, exercised toward you. Hosea 11 verse 4 says this, God speaking to Israel, I drew you them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as one who takes the yoke from their neck. Do you see that description of the courtship? We are like rebellious, stupid beasts that won't come to God. We have to be yoked. But when Christ comes to get us, He does not drive us with the whip into heaven. He takes the yoke off of us and draws us with love. Now think about how that works. The way God deals with our minds. He doesn't force us to believe things. Oh, but He does deal with our minds. The gospel is amazing, but it's not irrational. If we think rightly about God and we think rightly about us and about sin... And we look at the facts of the scripture. The gospel makes perfect sense. The Holy Spirit convinces us that what we're reading is real. In the gospel, the Holy Spirit draws us to the Son by opening our eyes to who He is. Fully God, fully man. He doesn't ask us to fall in love with a a blind date. All right, with a male war bride, you know. He shows us who he is. The old writers called gospel preaching the market day of the soul. What do they mean? It's like going to town, and to your surprise, it's a big festival, and it's, there's a big market, and so now all the streets are lined with everybody selling stuff, you know, cheap, everything's on sale, big, grand thing. The gospel is when Christ brings beggars into the city and to our surprise, all the riches of God are laid out in front of us in Jesus Christ and he enables us to understand who this Jesus really is. Not only does he teach us about Christ, but he also teaches us the truth about sin and he opens our eyes to see what sin is really like. Do you understand that there is that the person who understands sin best is the person that has the least contact with sin because sin in its nature is deceptive. So we think the exact opposite. We think, you know, I really lived a rough life. I I know about sin. No, you do not know about sin by sinning. Sin lies. It's like walking into a dark room and saying, I understand what's in this room because it's dark. My room's darker than your room, so I know I understand my room better. But Sin lies to us. The only one who has a right to explain sin to us perfectly is the one being who hates sin perfectly and has never embraced sin, and that's God. So he draws us with these cords. He doesn't drive us. What does he do? He shows us sin in its true light, and we too hate it. He explains to us the work of the cross. 
Why does he have to die? Why did he have to live? He, he takes our secret objections where we say to God quietly, where nobody hears us in church, I would, I would, but. And he deals with us gently. And he says to us, well, you say this, but. And he begins to unravel all of our childish complaints and objections. He draws us individually. He deals with each one of us as individuals, not as just a group of cattle. I mean, think of a wise parent who has four, five, six children. Every child is different. And the way that we have three children, the way I talk to my oldest son is different than the way I talk to my youngest, and that's different than the way we talk to the daughter. They're all three very different, so they had to be approached differently. When God deals with us, one of the glories of the way he draws us to himself is like an ever-wise parent. He comes and he meets us where we're at, and he draws us to himself, and everyone's conversion is a little different. I mean, I know we have, we have the eyes being opened, we have conviction, we have repentance and faith, we have justification, God has, has made us alive, we've embraced him. But really, when you talk to believers, isn't it amazing that even though all those elements are in every conversion, that every believer is different? When God dealt with Elijah, it was a still, small voice. When God dealt with the woman at the well, he says to her, you have this aching thirst, but I know where you can get living water. When God deals with Saul of Tarsus, he smashes him to the ground in the vision by the majesty of the sun. How did God deal with you? Can you remember how the Lord dealt with you individually and gently to draw you to himself? There is another aspect of the glory of the church, not just how he brought us to himself, but there is the glory of what he has done to alter our condition once he brought us to himself. And God often describes this by contrast because they, they're easy for us and we need help. You were, but now you are. One after the next in Scripture. You were, you are, you were. You need that if you're a Christian because sometimes you feel that it's hard to say, I was, but now I am. Because sometimes we act like we used to act and we question, am I what I once was? I thought God changed me. How can I still act this way? There is a difference though, isn't there? Charles Spurgeon described what happens in, when God births us anew in the regeneration and how that changes our behavior. He said, we once used to be like pigs and we loved slop and trash and garbage and we ate it up and we wanted as much as we could get. It never bothered us. But once God transforms you, you're not a pig anymore, you're a human. Now, if there's a pile of slop down here and you... Go back to eating slop. You can act like a pig again for a while, but you'll throw it up. You can never go back. You once were, but now you are, is one of the great glories of the church. Listen to these passages that describe how God has altered the condition of every person in his family. Romans six seventeen, God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin... Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. That is such a precious phrase. You were handed over to a doctrine, to the gospel. God handed you over to the gospel, and through the gospel, you are no longer slaves of sin. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. 
And such were some of you. He's just given a list of a lot of nasty sins. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Ephesians 2 verse 12. At that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise. Having no hope without God in the world. Ephesians 5 8. You once were darkness. Now you are light. Walk as children of the light. 1 Peter 2 9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. You see the contrast. Though we were not attractive when he sought us out, we, he has not left us ugly. In Psalm 45, that wonderful picture, the foreshadowing of the marriage of Christ and the church. And it describes the beauty of the king and then it talks about the queen When they're married, he clothes her in such beautiful clothes. The psalmist says this, all the world envies you, to paraphrase it. You're beautiful now. When you read the Song of Solomon and see the husband's descriptions of his bride, I think they're very appropriate to apply to Christ's descriptions of his church. Because of what Christ has done to you, because he has clothed you with his beauty, he can turn and say things to us that we would never say about ourselves. There is a glory in how he's altered every person in his family. Let me give you another one. There is a glory in the way he describes your present relationship with him. Think of the metaphors he uses in the Bible. I mean, it's like God has ransacked the English language to get our attention. He is your kinsman, your near relative who redeems you. You are his bride, brought as close to him as possible. You are his confidant, and he shares his secrets with you. He is your friend, who gives his life for you. You are his child, who you have been embraced, and delighted in, and protected. You are his dwelling place, a living temple. You are the jewel, or the special possession which he treasures. I mean, we could go on and on. It doesn't really rest on how we do this morning, how, how well our quiet time went. If we are Christians, if we are Christians, we are in Christ. We are in the body of Christ. And it is a glorious thing to be in the body of Christ. Let me point you to another picture of the glory. There is a glory in the way that we journey. Right? So he's saved us, but we're on a pilgrimage. And we're going to meet him. Now that does not sound really glorious. I mean I know that we can understand it's glorious. He purchased us. He loved us from eternity past. He's altered our condition. We once were but now we are. He's given us a completely new position before him. He's changed our relationship to him. But when you talk about the Christian journey. All of its ups and downs and its struggles. It doesn't look like it matches the others when we talk about glory. But it is a glorious journey. Think of it this way. Think of the lavish supplies. That your husband provides for you. David sang about it in Psalm 23. He said this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Two things in, that state, in those statements. We are on a battlefield as Christians. But we are not eating MREs. You know what an MRE is? 
It's worse than a lean cuisine. <laughs> Meal ready to eat. So it's what you give the soldier. Lots of calories. It's not what you'd want to eat. But it's good for battle, isn't it? God does not treat us this way. You are in a life and death battle. You are the you of all people in the history of the world. The Christian is fighting a battle that makes every other battle pale in comparison. It's a life and death, eternal kind of battle. I know we don't think about it very clearly sometimes, but that's where you're at. Are you eating rations, waiting one day for the goods? Not what David said. Right in the battle, the king comes to the soldiers and he spreads this feast. And our enemy would like to get at us, but the king holds him at bay and he tells you, sit down, eat as much of you as you want of the best food. Right in the middle of a battlefield. Second thing he says there is that there is this royal escort in the journey. So there's lavish provision, the best of the good food, but there's also a royal escort. We are always shadowed by goodness and mercy. And they will escort every person in the family of God into the presence of Christ. Paul explains it more fully in Romans 5. Listen to what he says. If when we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. If when you hated him, he purchased you with the death of his son, do you think that now he won't finish the great rescue? Do you think that the journey to Christ now is going to be a beggarly journey? No, much more now. Listen to Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? If he gave the son, will he hold back a pocket change? We say to God, I'm so needy. I don't know what to do. My family's in trouble. Where do I turn? God, the church, we need you. Lord, I need you. Whatever you need. Do you think he'll hold it back after having given you a son? There's a lavish supply for the journey. And there's a real glory in that. Now think of this. Think of not only the, the supply, but think of the destination of this journey. Everyone goes through this life and everyone has hard times, but only the bride of Christ, only the church has the destination that's glorious. There's a physical destination for us. Philippians 3 says that the same power which Christ has now enthroned at the right hand of the Father, the same power by which he will subdue all the nations to himself, will be exercised upon every Christian who stands before him to do what? To transform this body into an everlasting, glorified body like his own. There is a glory in that destination. Think of the spiritual aspect of that. Psalm 17, verse 15. The psalmist writes, As for me, I will see your face, God, in righteousness. I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. It's a glorious destination. You won't look like you. When we wake and we see the Lord Jesus Christ There won't be so much of this John Snyder, the old life. It'll be transformed and 
it'll be John Snyder transformed into John Snyder made Christ-like. Now, these are some, just some of the ways we can see that what Kuiper said was true. The Word of God tells us that the church of Christ is glorious, not only in the past and not only prophesied for the future, she is essentially glorious. The Christian church is glorious in its very nature. Now, how do we apply that to everyday life? Do you, are you gripped by the glory of belonging to a body of believers? Or do you still think that you can follow Jesus fully and bring glory to God as you were meant to bring glory to God through your salvation as an individual? We are saved and God deals with us personally, but you are not saved in the ultimate sense individually. Salvation is a very personal thing, me and Christ, and there's a transaction But it's not an individualistic thing where the rest of my life, it's just me and my Lord. It's me and the glorious body. I'm a part of a kingdom. My life is just one little bit of a tapestry. I have been saved to bring glory to God forever. But I have been saved as a part of a body to bring glory to God forever. Now, here's what I mean. There are aspects of Christ-likeness that you will never be able to reflect if you are a Lone Ranger Christian. You can, without the church, without other believers, you can grow in Christ-likeness. Some some believers in history have not had other believers near them. But what God intends for the believer on earth cannot be reached as an individual. You must be a part of the body. We read the New Testament, we're Americans, we read everything with the individual in mind, but if you look at the Greek, you can look at the, the English, really, you know, you don't have to be a Greek expert. There's a lot of plurals. Be filled with the Spirit. Well, you've got to go to the Greek there, or just a commentary, it's all of you. So we're not waking up in the morning and saying, God, I just want the fullness of the Spirit, just me and you, give me, give me special gifts. No, it's it's the whole body. So many of the commands in the epistles is, all of you do this. There are aspects of the Christian life. There There are qualities in God that ought to be reflected by a Christian, but they will never be reflected if we're individualistic. It must be as a body that you reflect. And being a part of an imperfect church that sins will not impede that. How you respond in gracious love to people that sin against you in a church is one of the wonderful ways that you show the world what God is like. And you can't do that if you're a loner. Well, do we really see the glory of the church? There is another glory that I didn't mention because I wanted to end with it. There is a glory of the church's responsiveness. There is the tenderness There's a beauty in a child that's still tender toward their parents, not arrogant, not hard, even as an adult, that they want to honor their parents. There's a beauty in a husband and wife relationship when they're mutually responsive to each other, not hard, and they haven't thrown walls up between each other. There's a beauty in the church when we are responsive. 
every mention of the, of the distinguishing, special, sovereign love of God toward His people in Scripture that I can think of is linked with commands that we have to live differently because we've been loved like that. So 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So as a church, we want to do that. Or 2 Corinthians 5, he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So as a whole church, we want to do that. We want to quit living for ourselves and live for him. Ephesians 4, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called, and we want to do that. In a sense, what God has done to make you a part of his, the body of Christ and a part of a real church, has, God has done some things that are irreversible in your soul if you're a Christian. And they do affect the way we live. We're not perfect. But like I said, we can't go back, can we? So I think we can say things like this. You, if you're a Christian, you have been placed into Christ and into the body of Christ in such a way that you are now too clean to go swimming in those cesspools that you used to live in. You are too loved to go chase after the old lovers. You are too rich with his righteousness to go about and try to work up your own spiritual pennies by doing all the rules. If we think about the glory of the church, one of the obvious things we want to do is we want to not neglect the gathering of believers. Now, I'm not preaching to the people that aren't here tonight, but all of us get tired. And, and I find that all of us get spiritually down. And it's very easy to believe this lie. You know, you're not really a help to that church, and you're a drag on everybody. Poor Pastor Tony, every time you show up at church, you're dragging along, and he has to come and pull you aside and come alongside you and try to help you. And you know, really, it would just be better for the whole church if I just stayed home this week because I'm just, I'm just doing so terribly. Do not believe it. If we see the glory of belonging to God and we are having the most rotten week spiritually and it's all our fault, we still have to wake up and say to ourselves, I belong to an everlasting family. I will gather with these other believers. It's not a small thing to belong to a body. And I will seek the Lord with them. I will pray with them. I don't want to f- fail to be a part of their life. Ephesians 4 says we're all, part of being, we're all part of the process of building each other up until when? Until we come to the fullness of the stature of Christ. Anybody got there yet? Testimony time? Hmm? You could say to me, I have spiritually reached the maturity and the fullness of Matching the spiritual stature of Jesus Christ. But that's where we're all headed if we're in his church. But the way you get there is as a body. And he teaches Joe and Susan and everyone else. And we begin to pour our lives into each other. The spiritual leadership equips you to better serve each other. And the body is built up. Well, as a church... I think that you know that you have many choices ahead of you. And you can make those choices by reacting against what other churches do. These churches are uh, slick and cool and very modern, so we're going to be very conservative, and that will please Jesus, but that will lead you down a wrong road. 
These churches are slick and cool and modern. They've got a lot of young people, so we will be slick and cool and modern, and that will lead you down the wrong road. You're facing a minefield. But the Lord walks with his people. The goodness and the mercy of God will escort you. If you cling to him as a body, he will show you the right choices to make. And in years to come, you'll look back and see that it was a glorious thing that he did. Well, the church is essentially a glorious entity. And if we see that because we have right views of God, it does change the way we live. Let me close with the verse from Ephesians 3, verse 20 and 21. Paul says this, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.